All right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad that you've taken time out of your busy weekend to spend some time with us today. Um, thank you, Pastor Ed, for the last four weeks of his series. Um, yeah, I, uh, I told him on the live feed that we might want to put a thing up that says, Pastor Frank is back. You're going to be here a while. Uh, because Ed tends to, uh, was funny before the service, he's like, I just can't make them longer. I said, I just can't make them shorter. <laughs> so they average out over time. Over the last four weeks, I've seen some incredible things. This has been the most amazing four weeks. Uh, as you know, Tammy and I got to see our grandson, our first grandson. Um, I don't have words to describe that feeling. I, I thought I would, but I just don't. Seeing your son become a father is priceless. It's the most amazing thing. He'll now finally begin to understand how much his mom and I truly love him. Something about becoming a parent makes a lot of things apparent, if you know what I mean. As I held Henry, I call him Hank because it rhymes with Frank. I kept praying and wondering what his eyes would see. What kind of world is he going to live in? What does the future hold for him? What does God have planned for him? Why did God send him here? Why did he send him to us? And why did he send him now? How will he be gifted? Will he one day be born again because he chooses Jesus? Or is he doomed to remain in the flesh and an enemy of God? Will we be together for all of eternity, or is this it? He was so brand spanking new. I kept thinking, you were with God just months ago. You were like right there. He knit you together in the womb. I wish you could tell me what that was like. Before he was in the womb, God knew my grandson. I was full of joy. I was thrilled for my son, for my daughter-in-law, thrilled for Tammy. So grateful to God for this incredible gift and this experience. And yet at the same time, I know the future. I know where we're all headed. I know that we're in the end times. And what that means is that these times will end. I was sent by God to this world in 1961. In my 59 years, I've seen so much. Technology, medicine, communications, they've exploded. They've become so much more advanced. And yet, through my lifetime, morals, decency, the value of human life, the value of the potential of unborn life, the respect of women, the value of women, the respect and fear of God, the importance of Jesus, the trust in God's truth have all plummeted year by year. What I've seen in my lifetime is a degradation of the dignity, respect, and value of human life and God. What we speak of and are bombarded with on television and radio and social media were only spoken about in the most crude circles 40 years ago. Things that we see on TV today, no one would have spoken in good company 40 years ago. And so I, long, I wonder, long after I'm with Jesus, what is Hank going to be exposed to? What will he experience? How hard is it going to be for him to sort out all the lies and find the truth of Jesus? I know that every year we live, we're moving further and further away from God, and God told us this would happen. 2 Timothy 3.1, but understand this. In the last day, there will come times of difficulty for people to be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. 
Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Always learning but never able to arrive at truth. If there was one verse to describe our world, I think this would be it. We have all kinds of knowledge. We've watched it explode, but we're further and further away from truth. We're all experts in learning and promoting lies, totally oblivious to God's uh, truth, puffed up with our own accomplishments that mean absolutely nothing. Also during the last four weeks, Tammy and I traveled to Chicago and to Nashville. Quite a bit of culture shock going to Chicago. In Chicago, there's a more palpable fear of COVID-19. You could feel it among the people. They have a fear of COVID that reminds me of the earlier days here in Florida. At the same time, businesses are boarded up. Businesses are open on a limited basis. Since we left, they've closed even more. Black Lives Matter signs are everywhere. They're all over the streets. Some seem to be placed there just in an attempt to prevent looting. The number of COVID cases, and particularly death from COVID, was quite lower than I expected in such a large city with so many people. Probably because of the young age of most of the people. The weekend that we were there, though, 36 people were shot and killed. And it didn't make the news. 36 people shot and killed during the weekend we were there. I wanted to tell Tammy, we need a t-shirt that says, I survived a weekend in Chicago. Then Tammy and I returned to Florida. Just in time for the experience of our elections for president and Congress. When I saw the fear in the eyes of people in Chicago, I I knew our elective process was going to be interesting. I never preach politics. And the reason is God says, preach the word. I'm going to preach some things today that are from the word. I found myself on election night, alternating between Fox News and CNN. It was amazing to me. They're looking at the exact same data. And it was like they were in completely different worlds. Both incredibly biased with a clear agenda of deception. The experts on both channels claiming to know what's going to happen. As the scriptures promised, always learning but never arriving at truth. I'll admit that I have a preference for the more conservative policies of Republicans. But I found myself that night and the crazy days that have followed asking God, what are you doing? Not what are you doing, but hey God, what are you up to? What are you doing? It's interesting, God. Why are you doing it this way? You do whatever you want, God. You're sovereign, but okay. You got my attention. This is interesting. I knew that God had already chosen our next president. I don't have to worry about that. I knew that the president, no matter who he is, would do what God directed him to do. The word says that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. I don't have to worry about that. I knew that God had a bigger plan that I probably didn't understand. But he had a reason for showing us how deeply divided we really are as a nation. It could have been a landslide either way. It wasn't. There's a reason for that. God's working out his plan and his purpose. What is it? I don't know. I kept wondering, God, why didn't you just reveal your choice in a landslide? Why are you trying to show us about ourselves? What lesson are we supposed to learn about ourselves? So as I was praying through this series, I was asking God, as I always do, what do you have next for remnant? What is it that you want this body of believers to focus on? What do you want to teach us in this moment? What do you want me to tell them? What do you want, need me to teach about myself that I can share with them? Because God always works on me before he tells me how to preach something. And I'm never finished, by the way. I'm usually more screwed up when I'm preaching it than I was before we ever started. God impressed them on me. Tell them about my sovereignty. Remind them what it means when they say, 
Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remind them that end times means things are ending. Remind them that sending them as light into darkness means the darkness is going to be dark. Prepare them for what's coming. Fortunately, we have God's word to guide us. His truth, it's our true north, the standard against which all else must answer. My emotions over the last months reminded me of Paul. In his letter to the Romans, we're going to look and hopefully learn through Paul what God has to teach us about the circumstances they experienced and the ones that we're experiencing now. We'll spend the next four weeks looking at Romans chapter 9. Now let me set the context of this passage. Remember that Paul's a missionary and an apostle of Christ. He wanted to go to Rome. Rome was where everything was happening. If you were going to reach the world, you went to Rome. But for various reasons, he was unable to get there. So he wrote a letter to the Romans. Until I get there, this is what you need to know. And he wrote a very detailed letter to the people in Rome that we cleverly call Romans. Chapter 8 is the most famous chapter in Romans. Starts with there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It moves on through a comparison of the mind that's set on the flesh versus the mind that's set on the spirit. He speaks of being heirs with Christ and having an Abba, Father, a, a relationship with Daddy. In verse 18, he says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul begins to reveal something to the Romans. The suffering that you're feeling in the current time. Creation subjected to futility. In other words, everything about the human experience, everything about creation is headed towards futility, meaningless. Everything in Rome at that point had come to a point where everything seemed futile. Their uh, empire's fallen apart. Things are running rampant that would never have been allowed before. They were devaluing life. I have a sense of what Paul is saying to them and to us. We know that the Roman Empire eventually collapsed under its immorality, its internal division, and, well, the futility of human efforts. And in this passage, Paul tells us why it happened. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Why are things so futile and so meaningless? Because God deemed it to be. It's the consequence of God's punishment for our sin. Even though everything in our world will become meaningless, futile, and the opposite of what God intended, God still gives us hope. Verse 20, Paul says this. After he says, For creation was subjected to futility not willingly. We know it's been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Paul told the Romans, and he tells us, God subjected our world to end. For all human efforts to eventually become meaningless. Why? So we would groan for better days. So we would long for a world that's very different than the one we're in. This world, creation, every person is living under the curse of sin. Full of information, but not arriving at truth. That's the future for us. It's the future for you. It's the future for me. It's the future for my grandson. So we find ourselves, as Paul says, hoping for what we're not seeing. We wait for it with patience. We look out at our world and we say, God, when is this going to change? When I come back. 
Paul ends chapter 8 with the truth that sustains them when everything seems futile. Here's what he says. After saying everything's meaningless, after everything is horrible, he turns and he says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know how things are, but I know Jesus. I know how things look, but I know Jesus. I know that things look difficult. I know things look like they're not God-honoring, but I know God. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul turns from that thought, and he says this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul says, look, I look around the world today and my soul is literally breaking for what's happening to people that I love. I'm watching the people I love the most struggle against the futility of trying to make sense out of a sinful life that's already cursed. It brings me great sorrow and anguish in my heart. I know that feeling. I know what Paul's talking about. I've been trying for weeks to come up with the words that I've been feeling to express how I feel. The Holy Spirit is my witness too. My heart is full of great sorrow for the people that I love. Paul adds, it's not only anguish. It's unceasing anguish. It doesn't go away. It never stops. I think about the people that I love who don't know Jesus and my heart breaks for them. We're headed for end times. We're headed for dark, horrible times that are not going to get better year by year. They're only going to get worse. Why? Because God ordained it. And God is sovereign. Every decade of human experience has moved humans further and further from God. I've seen it over the six decades that I've been here. I can remember my grandfather speaking in his 80s about how much life had changed, how, how much the world had morally moved to a dark place. I told you guys once that my grandfather told me the story of how one Wednesday night they went down to, to a theater because it was showing a movie that they considered horribly offensive to God. They picketed every church in town closed, Methodist, Presbyterian, they all got together for one event to protest the opening of this new movie called Gone with the Wind. And they were picketing because the word damn was in it. Oh my, how we have changed. I know God's truth, and yet I know many who I love are filled with man's information, never arriving at truth. They're living futile lives without God in futile circumstances. I, I, it breaks my heart to watch it. They should know better. Yet there they are, spiraling towards hell, like the dance band on the Titanic. Then Paul says something that resonated with my heart as a father, and now my heart as a grandfather. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's saying, look, God, curse me and save the people I love. I would take that curse. If it's on my children and my grandchild, I'd do it in a heartbeat. God, curse me so they can live. Somehow God could pour out his curse on me and doing so would save them. God, I'm all in. And as I meditated on that truth this week, begin to see Jesus in a deeper way because that's exactly what he did. God, pour your curse on me so I can save the people I love. God, I'll do it. I'll go to the cross. You pour out your wrath, your anger on me because I love these people and the thought of them being separate from you for all of eternity is too much for me to bear. Jesus saw me the way I see my children and my grandchildren. Doomed under sin, headed to hell. 
And Jesus, full of love for us, said, Father, I'll suffer in their place. Put your wrath on me. Unfortunately, I can't save my children. I can't save anyone else. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. Another lesson about the sovereignty of God that we'll study in the next few weeks. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's a gift from God. Not as a result of works that no one can boast. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him on the last day. Do you know the hardest part of me having to come to the final realization that my children have rejected Jesus? They grew up in my home. I'm the spiritual leader of my home. They attended church with us every week. Prayed together, talked to God all the time. We tried our best to show Jesus to him, to all of them. We tirelessly served the homeless and took things to them and showed them how Jesus would care for other people. We taught them all that we thought they needed to know about Jesus. We constantly encouraged them to turn to the truth of God instead of listening to the lies of the world. To ignore what the world said about them and to hold on to what God says about them that's true. We took in foster children to try to help our children understand what it means to live the way Jesus taught. We were by no means perfect, but we tried our best. The greatest regret of my life is that it wasn't enough. I failed to show Jesus to my children. I don't know how. God's word says, and when I am lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. I did all that I knew to do in the moment to lift Christ up so my children could see him. I used to pray all the time, God, I want them to see you in me. So I always carry this feeling that their rejection of Jesus is somehow my fault. I'm just being really honest. I, I know that they have to own it. I know that salvation belongs to God. I know that salvation is theirs and theirs alone, that I can't own it, but I'm telling you how I feel. There's a part of me that wonders, could I have gone back? So I understand, as Paul does, the very next verse. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. Paul's saying, look, these are my kinsmen. They share my flesh. They're Israelites. They're descendants of Israel. They're part of the 12 tribes. They're children of God. They were given everything. They were born in Jewish families. They, they held the promise of God. God placed them in special homes. They received the adoption. They weren't born distant from God. They were being surrounded by him. They had it all right in front of them. Every opportunity to recognize Jesus. They had the glory of God, the covenants, the promises of God, the giving of the law, the truth of God, the worship, the promises, the revelation of the future. It was all given to them. Paul says, like, these aren't random people who were on some island and were never exposed to Christ. These are my kin. These are my relatives. They share my DNA. They're given every opportunity. Their lineage includes everybody. Abraham, Adam. Noah, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, all the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the kings, David and Solomon, all the patriarchs. It came from their race, their DNA. Those people's blood coursed through them. And most importantly, they share the lineage of Jesus Christ, who's God over all. Paul's saying, look, these are my people and they've rejected Jesus. And it's ripping me apart. It's as if Paul almost can't believe it. They're not rejecting Jesus out of ignorance or out of lack of exposure or a lack of teaching or a lack of worship or failure to be given the truth. They've been given everything. And they just can't see. And that's exactly how I feel about our world today, particularly in the West. As a Christian nation, at least one time in our past, 
We were given everything, generation after generation. We were born into families that were surrendered to God. God placed so many of us in special homes where we weren't distant from God, we were surrounded by Him. It was laid right out in front of them. They were given the truth, the promises of God, the opportunity to become adopted children of God, grafted into the same lineage that produced the patriarchs. They were given the truth of Scripture. Most of them rejected a Bible they never truly read with their hearts. They too were offered the promises of God, the covenants of God, as true for them as they were for Abraham and David. Like Paul, we cry out, these are my kin, it's my family. They're my relatives, my children, my grandchild. They share my DNA. They were given everything. They were born in America, or they came to America. There are churches on every corner. There are hundreds of Christian radio stations. There's a few true Christians on television even. Bibles are available in every hotel room and in every bookstore. Just ask somebody. They will give you a Bible. Thousands of websites explaining the gospel message, blogs, Facebook pages, sermons have been cast and they're available to study and watch 24-7. Missions, missionaries, thousands of true Christ followers who would do anything for them. And when Paul says they are Israelites, I can hear my heart exclaiming they're Americans. They should know. They've been living under God's enormous blessing and God's incredible protection. How could they reject God? How could they not see him? So Paul shares with us the emotions of his heart. He goes from, I'm sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The one thing I know for sure, Paul says, nothing can separate us on God's side. So why are so many people separated? He says, it's tearing me up. I can't get it. In both passages, Paul's speaking truth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's going to love us no matter what. But many of us have separated ourselves from that love. He loves us even when we reject him. In both passages, Paul's speaking truth. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. God loves all of us unconditionally. He loves us when we reject him. His word says that, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's wrestling with this very sobering truth. While nothing can separate us from God's love, we can choose to separate ourselves from him. That's the reason his heart is in anguish. People he loves are walking away from Jesus. They've been given everything. And they were choosing to reject all of it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Paul says. If there was a way, I'd die for those I love. I'd do it a minute. But I'm not worthy to do that. We can't be their substitute. We can't take the place of Jesus. He alone is worthy to be sacrificed for sin. It's faith in him that brings people into a relationship with God. Paul says, I wish I was cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, but I can't save them. And that's causing anguish within me. No matter how much I love them, no matter how much God loves them, they can choose to reject all of it. And in that struggle, we begin to understand our introduction into the sovereignty of God. In the next four weeks, we're going to gain a deeper understanding of God's sovereignty. Those of us who grew up in a democracy really struggle with the sovereignty of God. It goes against our arrogance. It goes against our independence. It goes against our false belief that we control our destiny. It goes against the lie that we believe about how we control the world around us and the future with what we do. God declares himself to be sovereign. Pay attention to your emotions as we start going through this because there's a part of us that wants to rebel. The sovereignty of God means that as ruler of the universe, God is free and has a right to do whatever he wants. He's God. He's not bound or limited by the dictation of his created beings. He owes you no explanation. 
Your limited brain can't logically come up with the reasons God does what he does. He's God and you're not. Deal with it. That's what scripture says. Further, he's in complete control of everything that happens on earth. His will is the final cause of all things. In the Bible, sovereignty is talked about as a kingship. God rules and reigns over the entire universe. He can't be opposed. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He is enthroned. His throne is a symbol of his sovereignty. God's will is supreme. The result of trusting in God's sovereignty is knowing that his good purposes will be achieved no matter what we see or what happens. Nothing can hinder God's plan. History will be worked out and our future worked out according to the will of God. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say all things feel good. He doesn't say you're going to have a wrinkle-free life. He says whatever you're going through, you can know that somewhere in the cosmic beings, God is working out his goodness. How do we know that? Because when Jesus went to the cross, nobody thought there was anything good about that. And yet today, looking back, we see the hand of God. We see the sovereignty of God as he saved millions of people. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be praised in his glory. All things work according to the purpose of his will. The purposes of God are the most important reality in our life as Christ followers. James says, count it all joy when you go through trials, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and it's going to make you complete, lacking nothing. He goes on, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. There's a theological puzzle that comes when we think about the sovereign will of God. If God truly controls everything, how can humans have free will? If God's already determined who the next leader of the United States will be, did we vote? Are we robots? Is there anything we do that matters? We're going to get into that in the next three weeks. That's a teaser, we call it. But here's the thing you need to remember. The ugly truth is that sinful humans deserve nothing from a holy God. We can't manipulate God in prayer. We can't expect a rich, pain-free life touted as the prosperity gospel. Neither can we expect to teach heaven because we're a good person. Christ is alone has provided the way to heaven. Part of God's sovereignty is that despite our unworthiness, he chooses to love and save us anyway. Incredible when you think about it. I want to show you just a few scriptures about God's sovereignty. Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, the very beginning, I told you everything that was going to happen. I declared the end from the very beginning. From ancient times, things that aren't even yet done, I've already declared them to be so. My counsel shall stand, I'll accomplish my purpose. I have spoken, it will bring it to pass, for I have purposed it and I will do it. One of my favorite psalms of all time that I quote at least 20 times a day. Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. Memorize that verse. Repeat it over and over. When you see things that don't make any sense to you, my God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. Why did that happen? My God is in heaven, he does as he pleases. Why did that moment in history happen? My God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. Why will the future happen the way that God says it will? Because my God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. Daniel says this, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. In other words, he doesn't need your opinion. He's already decided what he's going to do, both in heaven and on earth. None can say his hand or stay to him, what have you done? 
Paul in Romans says, why, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will, will the molded say to the molder, why have you made me like that? You see, we really struggle with God's sovereignty. Because in order to surrender to God's sovereignty, we got to admit we're not God. We forget that God is sovereign. We tend to forget about it when we think about the salvation of others or the spread of a pandemic or the election of a president. God has a mission for earth. All that he's promised will be accomplished. Nothing's going to be forgotten. Nothing that he promises will fail to come to fruition. God has a plan for my grandchild. He has a plan for this pandemic and he has a plan for our nation no matter who the president is. In every election, every appointment of a king, every rise of a leader occurred at the hand of God. Why does Julius Caesar, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Abraham Lincoln, JFK, Mussolini, Hitler, Churchill, Truman, FDR, JFK, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, what do they all have in common? They were all allowed to lead by God through his sovereign will in a specific place, in a specific time to carry out God's specific plan for mankind. God never promised to make every decision for the benefit of Americans. He promised to purge the world of sin, to save us from ourselves and to destroy the world as we know it. You cannot read the Bible about end times and not see that life as we've known it must come to an end. Jesus said that when the end is near, darkness will prevail. Sin will be rampant. The truth of God will be ignored. Christians will be persecuted. Churches will be targeted. Man will be given over to their debased minds to do what God calls evil. They're going to call good. That's the promise of Scripture. God told us the future so we'd prepare for it. And too often we act like we don't understand what's happening. Why is our world becoming more morally decadent? Because God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. Why, why are these things God is in heaven? He does as he pleases. Jesus says this, For the fig tree learned its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer's near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Jesus, what will it look like? Well, you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are just the beginning. Then they'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We'll study this in more detail. But the enormous freedom that comes once you embrace the sovereign will of God is incredible. Once you understand that God is working out his plan, that we're on his mission, not ours, that he's promised success, that everything will work out the way he says it'll work out, that every truth he says is true, every future promise is true. We've already won. He's working out his plan in our midst. Why? So that people will turn to him. What will be the historical story of COVID-19 years from now? It's easy. God used a global pandemic to bring about his perfect plan and his sovereign will. It's that simple. Why is it here? God's using it for his purposes. Who will be elected next president of the United States and the one in 2024 and 2028 and 2032? The person that God chooses or allows to be chosen to carry out his perfect plan and his sovereign will. God knows which person is best suited to carry out his will. 
for our nation, for every nation. Not a king that rules anywhere in the world that God didn't allow to happen. We vote our conscience, but the outcome's not ours. Will Trump steal the election? Will Biden steal the election? Is the election even going to be stolen? Will the Supreme Court decide? Will we fight in the streets to try to figure out what it means? I don't know. But here's what I do know. My God is in heaven, and he does as he pleases. And I'm good with that. Whatever God wants to do, I'm all in. That's because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'll admit, just to be honest, I don't like either man that's running for president. I'll just say it. I don't see Jesus in either one of them. Jesus said, we'll know them by their fruit. I don't see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and forbearance and self-control. I'm not naive enough to vote for a man. I'm not naive enough to deify a man. I voted for the person that I believe will best advance the mission of God. But here's the problem. I don't know what God has planned for our nation. I read the book and I don't see us there in end times. I'm just telling you. If you want to hear the whole story, I did 26 weeks on Revelation. It's on the website. It's on Frank Bible Truth Podcast. You can go listen to it. I read the book. I don't see us. There's no mention of a huge godly nation from the West coming in to save the world. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Israel will stand alone. There's no mention of an ally with a huge army and a lot of money. What it says is Israel's going to stand alone against the world and God's going to supernaturally protect Israel so there's no doubt who did it. So as I read scriptures, I see the demise of America. As I read the papers, I see the demise of America. I see the moral decay, the rebellion of people against God. I know his wrath has to be headed our way. We'll get into this in the next few weeks. We've studied over and over the Israelites, Judah, how God brought the Assyrians and the Babylonians in to punish them for their disobedience. What were they doing? Worshiping themselves, worshiping false idols, killing babies, not following God. If God doesn't bring his wrath upon our nation for what we've been doing, then it'll be the first time in the history of mankind that God has not brought just punishment. We gotta wake up. So God's choice for president could be the person who most quickly brings us faster into moral decay, lawlessness, and the implosion of the American dream. Could clearly be God's will that this experiment of American democracy comes to an end. We don't know what God has planned. We know how the end looks. We don't know where we are in relation to that. So God, just as God rose up the Assyrians and the Babylonians, it's naive of us to believe that what we've done as a nation hasn't stirred up his righteous wrath. It's likely that God needs to give us over to our debased minds to do and receive what we deserve as a nation. God almost always allows lawlessness and ungodliness to go rampantly unchecked before his wrath is poured out. So that when his righteous rebuke comes, it'll be clear that it's measured and it's appropriate and it brings about his mission on earth. God says, look, you don't know what I'm doing. I didn't ask you to weigh in on what I'm doing. I'm sovereign. I want you to get on my plan. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm not asking for your opinion, God says. I don't need it. I'm sovereign. Oddly, despite the tone of this sermon, I'm very optimistic about the future. I know. You see, here's why I'm so optimistic. My God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. He's not pro-American. There's no American covenant with God. There's nothing that says God has to bless our nation no matter what we do or how much we reject him or how many babies we kill or how many times we worship money instead of him or how we degrade the church or how we say that coming together as a church is some like non-essential thing. In fact, the more you understand God's heart, 
the more you realize his blessings on our nation really can't continue until we confess our sins and repent. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray for them, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. That's the only thing that's going to change the future of America. Will we as a nation repent? I don't know. I just don't know. But I know God's in control. He tells us there'll be dark days ahead. Sinful days, disgusting days, immoral days. Days so horrible. There'll be a great tribulation that has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You see it? God always saves a remnant. But for the sake of the elect, God protects those who surrendered to him. He's done it throughout history. He promised to do it in days yet to be history. That's the reason we named this church Remnant. Years ago when we started praying about God, what are you doing with this group of people? A group of us felt God was leading us to obey him and follow his truth no matter what happens in the world. To preach the truth in season and out of season. To do what God says to do and to create a church that Jesus would be comfortable in, that would be doing the things Jesus would do. To not shrink in fear, to walk in freedom that God is in heaven and he's working out his plan. To make sure that we know that our citizenship is in heaven, not the U.S. Our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to a king, not a president. And our king is already on his throne and he'll be there forever. So this week, when you're tempted to start blasting away at people on social media, acting like for some reason you need to defend God, remember that he's sovereign. And you and I are not. We don't know the plan God has for our nation. We don't know the purpose of God in this election. So let's stop pretending like we do. We're called to be a remnant. We're called to reach out to love those who are lost, to become peacemakers, to love those who hate you, to bless your enemies. And if you want to put it in there, to try to lead the people that are arguing with you on Facebook to Jesus. When Jesus tells us that horrible end times are ahead, he gives us our assignment. The one who endures to the end will be saved and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. What's our job as the world falls apart? To get on mission for the gospel of God. To tell people who don't know him what's happening. To lead them to Jesus Christ. We're not supposed to argue about elections. We're to proclaim the good news of Jesus to people who are lost and don't know. So before you post anything on social media, ask yourself, are my words a testimony to the love of Jesus Christ to all people? I want you to consider taking a fast from all forms of media. You're not going to find peace about the future on Fox or CNN. You're not going to get peace about the future with the way the election turns out one way or the other. The peace that you need is not going to come from some court decision. The permanent peace you crave is found when you finally surrender to the sovereignty of God in every circumstance in your life. Instead of spending all your time on social media, which you know I rail against, or instead of spending all your time watching pundits who don't know anything talk about the future, why don't you pick up the book and read about the sovereignty of God and read about the future and ask God to show you what he wants you to see because he's sovereign and he's your king. And the people that are on TV, most of them don't know him. So therefore, they can't share anything of importance with you about him or his future plans. We're going to go into this deeper in the next few weeks about his sovereignty. And we're going to discover that in that process, we lose ourselves. 
I want you to think about this. God chose a kingdom to represent his reign, not a democracy. God could have chosen any way to represent. He's a king, not a democracy. We live in a temporary earthly democracy, but we must never forget that our true citizenship is in heaven and we have a king. The fate of our nation related to COVID is under the sovereign will of God. The future of my grandchild is under the sovereign will of God. The future of America is under the sovereign will of God. Our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases in everything. So knowing this to be true, there's only one prayer left for us. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you're our king. I thank you that you're on your throne. Nothing gets past you. God, forgive us when we think we're in control. Forgive us when we put our trust in men or nations. Forgive us, God, when we put things ahead of you. God, for this group of people on this day, may we recommit to being citizens of your kingdom, temporarily here on earth on mission to reach people who are lost. God, you send us as light into darkness. The darkness is going to be dark. We're not going to be comfortable. We're going to see things we don't want to see. We're going to see things that rip us up inside because we know they offend your heart, but yet you send us into darkness. So God, no matter how dark our world gets, would you just help us make sure our light is bright? Help us, God, to not be shaped by the opinions of the pundits of the world, but to only be shaped by the truth of your scripture. Thank you, God, that you've got tomorrow under control. Nothing surprises you. Everything works out for your purposes, and we've read the book, so we know. Until such time, Jesus, as you return and we go back with you, would you move our hearts to reach these people who are lost? Would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? Please, God, don't leave us where we're at. Don't leave us so focused on something as temporary as an election that we miss the permanency of the eternal gift of God. Pray for our kin. We pray for our families. We pray for those we know that don't know you. God, we need the Spirit to move in their hearts. We need you to step in where we can't because salvation belongs to you. We love you, we love this place, we love these people. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.